Welcome to the OmniTalk Spotlight Series, the series where we highlight the people, the technologies, and the companies that are shaping the future of retail. Today, we are joined by Indy Gua, Chief Marketing Officer at Signify. And together, we are going to talk a little revenue optimization and fraud prevention. Two words that don't often go together, but after today, you're going to see that they sure as heck do. So, Indy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Good to be here. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, fraud prevention, that, that's not a topic, you know, that necessarily people are like, hey, you know, I want to hear all that you can tell me about that. We've never covered it on the show, but I think it's actually, you know, I've known you for a couple of years now. I think it's one of the coolest things out there. There's some really interesting angles to this, especially as we start thinking about how retail is evolving, the pandemic, omni-channel, like just give us the 411 on fraud prevention where Signified sits in that whole nexus of everything. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, the, the challenge for, for all of us as an e-commerce ecosystem is when people think fraud prevention, they're really just mapping over loss prevention from physical retail. Mm. Um, and then the challenge with that mindset, and this is Visa's data, it's not Signified's, is if you start benchmarking how many transaction attempts get declined in e-commerce, it varies a lot by category, it varies a lot by geography, by basket size, but the band is anywhere between 5% and 15%. So just think about that for a second. Let's take the middle of the range, 10%, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If I told you, hey, CMO, your marketing return on ad spend would be 10% more efficient if you tuned the payments layer you'd probably look at me like I had two heads, right? Because if the problem was that big, somebody would have brought it up before. Right. Um, or, you know, if I came to the VP of product or the VP of e-commerce and I said, hey, all of those amazing customer experience innovations you rolled out across your website, they would all be 10% more productive if you just tuned your checkout. Same reaction, right? If the right. problem was that large, someone would have told me about it. And I think it, this occurs because there's a couple of things happening in that payments layer, right? Uh, Ownership of the checkout experience and the data sources and the hops is scattered across e-commerce operations Mm -hmm. and finance and fraud prevention. So no one really looks at the end-to-end funnel. Hmm. Um, And there's a lot of legacy tech using a lot of broad traffic filters. So we'll talk more about that, but that's is that, fundamentally- Is that like a lack of ownership then too? Like in terms of who makes the decision as you get into that, that sea of kind of muckiness? Like, is that, is that a factor? Absolutely. I would, I would shorthand it as death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the end result is really high customer lifetime value shoppers get kicked out in the checkout flow. Uh, And so when we're talking about revenue optimization, that's really the problem we set out to solve. That's a bigger problem than fraud. You know, if you you can get your chargeback losses, the thing fraud prevention fixates on down to zero, if you dropped your your approval rate, your conversion rate through the payments layer to like 70%. Right. That's clearly not the right decision. So how do you find the sweet spot? Indy, what's happening on the customer side? Like- I think I don't, I'm not familiar with like that part of it. Like when you say you, you have the potential of losing this customer, like what, what are they seeing and what's happening and do the retailers even know about that? Or are they even paying attention if it's spread across so many areas? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And so uh, I think it, we call it the insult cost, right? Uh, okay. no, no customer wants to be perceived as having attempted to steal. Yeah. Um, and the way it shows up is sometimes you just get a random email from the retailer saying, sorry, your order has been canceled. No further explanation. Other times there's no communication at all. And maybe you've had this experience uh, where you're expecting a shipping confirmation. Three days go by. You don't get the confirmation. Mm. You then mm-hmm. click the track order link and it basically, you know, it might it might say the item's out of stock or something like that. But oftentimes what really happened is you hit a fraud filter, the order got cut off. And, you know, the assumption is if it's a real customer, they'll reach back out. And and sometimes that's true, right? If you're buying, um, let's see, uh, a custom pair of Nikes, you probably will reach back out. There's there's real brand affinity there, right? Right. But if you're buying a generic SKU that you could buy from any number of other retailers, you're just going to go get it on Amazon. I was going to say, or if it's your first time shopping with the retailer too, like right. this is my, I'm, I found you on Instagram. I'm shopping with you for the first time. And that was my experience. I'm definitely not coming back. I, I want to I make sure I understood this correctly too, for everyone listening. But like, so basically what you're saying is this is happening. And we as consumers don't actually know that this is why it's happening. There's some other kind of excuse or reason given could be in maybe if it's even an out of a so-called quote unquote out of stock or some rationale but so that's what you're saying here is we don't we don't actually even see this when when there's that leakage happening because the retailers are are you know thinking some people might be uh you know participating in fraudulent activity yeah it it almost doesn't matter what the stated reason is i think what we can all relate as consumers and shoppers to the feeling of frustration that, you know, I'm trying to give you money and I can't complete this transaction. Wow. I guess I will take my business elsewhere. Um, and I think that's uh, that's a real missed opportunity, right? It's not just the first time transaction where this problem happens. It's all future transactions that consumer would have made on your site. And if you think back to the moment we're all having as an e-commerce community, the uh, this whole channel got flooded with first time shoppers in 2020. Right. Right. And most sophisticated retailers really had to evolve customer experience to think about that first time shopper experience. And that is the exact scenario where where this drop off issue is most pronounced because most retailers have some way of tracking, hey, this person has bought from me before the transaction is probably okay. But for first-time shoppers, if they're flying blind without some benefit of network data to say, hey, this is a good shopper across all of e-commerce, they're gonna, they're much more likely to decline the transaction. Mm-hmm. That, and that's not going to slow down either. I mean, when you look at just how e-commerce continues to grow and continue to take a larger share of the pie, that activity is just going to continue to happen as people see new shoppers year over year over year over year, right? Yep. And, and I think this comes down to probably a, a, a macro topic you all have discussed many times on this, on this show. How do you solve for identity, right? And identity unpacks in a lot of different ways. I mean, let's just, let's just uh, think back to the holiday season. This past holiday season, many of us couldn't travel to be with friends, to be with family. 
And so a lot of that desire for togetherness probably manifested as gifting. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of gifting in really bald sort of fraud prevention terms, it's, hey, shipping and billing address don't match. And for many retailers, that's a reason to decline an order. Mm-hmm. But if you did that in 2020, you really missed out on a chance for real brand affinity, both from the person giving the gift and the person receiving the gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, the basket sizes on gifting this last year went up. Um, again, partly out of that desire to express togetherness, partly because what else were people going to spend money on? What else on? are you going to do? You're not buying airfare. You're not going on fancy meals. So a lot of that disposable income shifted to purchases. And so that's just one of any number of examples we could give of how much understanding shopper identity at a network-wide level and understanding the shoppers buying graph, all the places they ship to, all the people they ship for, under that, that, overall footprint is critical to 2021 e-commerce and beyond. Okay. Well, let's, let's click into that then. So let's take it back. Now let's take it back up a level. Cause I think you've, I think you've whetted the appetites. You've hooked us, especially in terms of like, that was a big aha there, right? At the beginning in terms of how this works and things that I don't think Ann and I knew very well, take us back up. So, so who is like signified in the context of that conversation? What is it that you guys do and, Kind of what is the special sauce in terms of how you think about what you're describing? Sure, happy to. Um, so the easiest way to think of us is we are implemented in the checkout flows of a few thousand merchants globally, um, you know, Walmart on down. And therefore, for the major e-commerce markets, give or take 98% of the time, we've seen a shopper before, right? That's okay. that shopping graph concept I was describing. So a first-time shopper for the merchant is almost never a first-time shopper for us. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of you know key use cases that that visibility unlocks. First and foremost, you don't have to use guesswork to figure out good traffic from fraudulent traffic. So our average merchant sees a five, seven plus percent lift in their conversion rates just because we're decisioning the orders better on good versus fraud. Right. Right. Number two, and this is probably most relevant for your audience, Chris and Ann, um, you have to you don't have to spend any time manually investigating the orders to figure out if they are if you should ship or not. Right. And if you think about all the innovation that's happening in Omni, right? Buy online, pick up in store, buy online, same day delivery, buy online, pick up curbside. Let's just pause here for a minute. For if the fundamental customer promises, place the order in the morning, hop out during your lunch break and your product is ready for you. It sounds like there's a two hour window there. The reality is you have to back out pick and pack time for the store associate. And so your actual decision window on, hey, is this a good order or a fraudulent order is single digit minutes. What manual is that now? Like, so when you describe like that, like what, what, what what are companies typically doing then in that time interval? Most big merchants have tens, if not hundreds of people doing this manually. And the problem is they, 
they would have historically treated it like a support ticket queue, which worked fine really? for the era where you had like five days. days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't do it for minutes. So last year, one of the, this automation use case, let's call the first use case kind of conversion optimization or revenue optimization. This automation use case was by far the biggest source of pain for sophisticated merchants because they were all comping at 50, 60, 70% or more year over year growth multiplied by, oh my gosh, Omnichannel went from 5% of my orders to 25%. It's just a throughput issue at that point. Yeah. Massive throughput issue. Got it. Um, so we automate all of that. You don't need people anymore if you don't want to to do it. Um, and then the last piece is we're so confident in our decisions, we'll kind of guarantee the ship decision. If it still comes back as a chargeback, we will reimburse the retailer for it. The, the reality is our data, it's not rocket science. It's just a data network effect. Uh, our data is so much more comprehensive that whatever your chargeback rates used to be, ours will be 70% lower. Um, so it's more a chance for us to align ourselves to the merchant and say, look, like for you to trust me to open up your conversion funnel, I got to back you up on the risk side of the equation. So let's just take the risk off the table and then let's align on customer experience and how do we make the most of this direct to consumer moment you are having. Um, now that said, and this is the last piece in the what to signify do story. Um, you know, the reality is the more retailers innovate on buy anywhere, pick up anywhere, return anywhere, the more surface area there is for a small subset of your customers to behave badly and try to steal from you. Right. It's not fraud because your adversary is not organized crime and stolen identities. It's what we would call abuse. Hey, you know, it, it got stolen off my porch. You got to send me another one. Uh, hey, it came, but it came damaged. I want another one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the same network data we're using to, you know, capture all good orders, keep out the fraud, also ports over pretty nicely to X shipping address is serially abusive. When this person calls your contact center, maybe consider denying the claim or, or, have that data for whatever customer service operating procedure you want to implement. Mm -hmm. um, so we power that abuse prevention and abuse management capability too. Does that help? Yeah. It does. You guys are like the, you're like the FBI of retail. <laughs> I mean, this is like, this is like a CSI case right now. It's, well, it's crazy. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I, I, and I will say, it's almost like, what's interesting to me about the whole angle of what you just described too, is it's almost like when you get down and think about it, it's almost like, why aren't the retailers kind of joining together to figure this out, which is essentially what you're doing. Because you're saying, look, we have a collection of all this information from everything that we're looking at. So we've already solved these problems. Why waste your time solving something that we as a collective can solve together? And let's you know figure out how to do that. And I think the second point that was really fascinating for me too and it goes back to kind of supply chain theory too, is retailers are now managing all this complexity, the nodes in the network, so to speak, you know, India, I should, it is Harvard business school with, we probably had the same course where they talked about this. The more nodes in the network there are, the more difficult and complex it gets to manage your inventory. Well, as a result of that, that gives an inherent bias to say to people, oh, you screwed up. Like, 
help make amends for me. You screwed up. Now, did it happen or not? It's probably going to happen more often. And so it's going to be harder to filter through that. And that's something I hadn't thought about is all these different fulfillment types are evolving. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think a lot of our bigger clients are, you know, basically coming to us because they initially tried spinning up internal firefighting on this whole abuse issue is very hard to quantify, right? You all have been retailers before. I think most retailers start from a place of, all right, we know it's a problem. We can't measure it. So, and, and we don't want a social media firestorm because we denied somebody's replacement claim. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll have a three strikes you're out policy. And the first time you call, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. The second time you call, I'll right. give you, I'll make a note and still give you the benefit of the doubt and I'll decline you the third time. Now, the yeah. problem is if you don't have really great CRM data, you could have multiple people calling from the same household. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have the same payment card show up on abusive transactions to multiple shipping addresses, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you really, it, it goes back to network data. You need to see the whole picture to actually normalize somebody's abuse pattern. Um, well, and the interesting thing about that, and then Anne, I know you got a question too, but like the interesting thing about that to me is like, when I think back to my time as a store manager, the analog for what you're describing is like the guy at the Target who's running AP goes and talks to the guy at Costco who's running AP and they're connecting in this same way you're just basically saying that that has like never happened digitally. And why isn't it happening digitally? That's essentially, you know, what we're talking about here, that there's efficiencies to, to think about that and do that in a much faster, simpler way through software, essentially, and data. For, for sure. And I think, look, um, I, I would argue there's, there's very few things Silicon Valley does that can't be done by industry experts. And, and there's no shortage of great talent working in retail. You know, our, our core our, our offering here is pull the data and go hire the people who used to work on Google Wallet and PayPal to automatically do all the data normalization. And it allows you to do really interesting feature extraction that the Costco AP person talking to the Target AP person may not have figured out, right? right. It's things like, um, you know, oh, okay, so there's a fraud attack vector where people look at houses listed for sale on Zillow and then use that as a delivery address because that delivery address doesn't exist in anyone's records. Um, and then basically when the delivery man shows up, they're getting the package tracking notification. And as soon as the delivery is completed, they just walk up to the house for sale and grab it off the porch, right? Um, so like those are those are things that are just easier for us to identify uh, through data mining and then automatically stamp out because we can now correlate the Zillow data into the retailer shipping data. Right. But, uh, and, and I, I apologize, you had a question earlier. And no, I well, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, I'm sure you're limited in what you can share about how you're collecting your secret sauce, like Chris was saying, or how you're, you're gathering all of this data. And then, the second part would be how how are retailers implementing this and what does that whole strategy look like? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess in terms of uh, data sources and how we use it, um, the data sources are very transparent. Um, and, you know, we work with our retailers to basically, I would say there are three or four big buckets. There's the okay. shopper's session behavior before the checkout. 
um, you know, and that can include anonymous sessions or authenticated sessions with an account. So we see the whole clickstream in short. There's okay. every data element that's part of the shopping cart or the checkout page. And then there's kind of a, a whole set of data around what happened with fulfillment. This is part of how we detect abuse, right? So we okay. integrate with your shipping provider to capture all of that automatically. And then there's obviously the actual, how did the transaction settle? Was it a good transaction? Did it come back as a chargeback? And those are kind of the four buckets of data we're constantly ping-ponging across, across thousands of merchants to kind of do what we do. In terms of integration, it's much simpler than that sounds because look, it's a modern product. Uh, we actually have pre-built integrations for all the major e-commerce platforms, all the major payment gateways, all the major OMSs, et cetera. And probably the best data I can offer on that, this is on G2 Crowd, it's based on merchant reviews. It's not a marketing claim. Uh, is merchant self-reported 75% of merchants are live in a month or less. Wow. Hmm. Uh, in fact, more than half our merchants are live in weeks. Well, that's uh, why I wanted to have you on the show because I think this is like, that's why I teased the intro the way I did because I think this is like, you want to talk about low-hanging fruit is we got to try to find whatever revenue we can find when some stores are closed or closed by certain locales. This is an easy, I think, concept for people to get behind and try to figure out and, and do something with. I have a question though now on that, shifting gears a little bit, like how has the pandemic changed things? Because the one thing I think about this is like, you've, you've got a lot more curbside orders, a lot more buy online pickup and store orders. That's a whole different game from a, a fraud prevention standpoint too, an optimization standpoint. So like, how have you guys had to think about that and what dynamics are out there that maybe retailers and those listening should, should know about? I, it's gotta Great be a question. whole different enchilada, right? Yeah, for sure. So uh, first of all, I, I hope curbside pickup never goes away. I have two I little kids <laughs> and the convenience of pulling up, you yeah. open your trunk, product appears in the trunk and you drive off and you never have to like corral your kids while they run yeah. through the store. Fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 100%. Now, you know, what does that mean? Uh, we touched on some of the dynamics earlier, right? Any type of manual order acceptance process breaks when you have fulfillment at that kind of speed, right? Uh, number one, so you have to automate it if you expect to do any real volume. And I think that that's one dimension of pressure for the retailer. The other dimension of pressure is, let's just take a step back. If it wasn't 2020 or 2021 and somebody pulled into a parking lot, opened their trunk and said, by the way, I'm wearing a mask, you know, put the product in my trunk and I am gonna peel out. I think you would call that a in the parking lot, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and like, this is our on the normal, side of the right? building. Yeah, right, you right, know. Right. totally. Yeah. By the loading uh, docks. Right no next to the deal. loading dock. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. This is all totally normal. Yeah, for sure. Nothing to see. Uh, so you know, as a retailer, you you have to consciously be okay with okay. Someone's going to show a store associate a receipt through a car window, which might have snow on it. You can't see the receipt properly. They're wearing a mask. Um, you know, if the line backs up in the parking lot, the stores, whatever training yeah. the store associate has on identity verification is going to go out the window. A, they're not a TSA agent. <laughs> B, the line's backed up. So like these are just all very real operational realities. And what we recommend to clients is effectively defense in depth. 
hey, if you have great fraud detection and good customer detection at the point of checkout, which is digital, the downstream implications of fraud risk are far lower. Also, do the things we were just touching on, train your store associates to do identity verification. That helps prevent what we would call mule fraud. When a bad transaction gets through, you know, the, fraud, the organized crime ring can just send somebody to do the pickup with a fake ID. They don't have to burn a shipping address. Um, and, you know, the last piece of defense in depth would be consider a liability shift. Um, you know, we're able to authorize that curbside pickup transaction and it's effectively give you insurance for any fraud that happens in that channel. So why open yourselves to the, you know, potential profit hemorrhage that could happen as you scale up the channel um, in case you do get stolen from that way. Um, so those would be a couple of considerations specific to curbside and omnichannel. I'm happy to talk about some of the other shopper behavior changes we're seeing across our network, but you, you tell me. Well, yeah, no, I think that's, let's go there. I think let's maybe we'll go there next and then kind of put the capstone on this whole thing and then we'll play how millennial are you, but like, where's, the, <laughs> where's this all? Yeah. Where is this all going? What changes in behavior are you seeing and what are the things maybe around the corner that we haven't asked that retailers are going to need to start thinking about? Man, so we could easily have spent the whole, you know, time on just this topic. Um, I'll I'll try to keep it uh, to the highlights. I think, you know, effectively what we have is an index fund of all e-commerce, right? Across our merchants, we're seeing sort of the full range of what people are shopping from for right now. And I'll connect it back to a comment I made earlier on how behavior shifted over the course of last year and during the holiday season. Right. So way more gifting, all of our gifting oriented merchants, be they jewelry, be they floral, be they whatever, um, musical instruments, hobby shops, they are seeing a lot of, you know, multi-party transactions um, as people just try to express their love for each other from a distance. the basket sizes on those things have gone up as we talked about um, because what else are you going to spend money on? And we've all been apart for a long time. Um, And then it's not all gifting oriented. There's a lot of treat yourself, right? Um, I think there's a few things that have happened. People have more time. They're not commuting. Um, And therefore anything that is, you know, hobbies I didn't have time for before have made a big comeback. Uh, musical instrument sales have skyrocketed, you know, um, cooking related gear sales have skyrocketed. We've all had the Instagram feed moment of everyone baking yeah. sourdough bread. The sourdough Just extrapolate bread that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but it's not just hobby oriented investments. And I'll stop here. People never in modern society have people spent this much time at home. And so there's this real... I have disposable income if, you know, uh, obviously there's a tale of two economies and we could easily spend half an hour just talking about that. But for, for people who are of higher income levels, they can't travel, they can't go on nice meals, but they're spending more time at home. That manifests as buy a lot of really nice furniture because you're going to be using it a lot more, upgrade yep. your home office, 
and by the way, upgrade kitchen appliances. So all of these categories that have seen this surge are just trying to catch up huge supply chain issues, product availability issues, et cetera. Um, so hopefully that's a bit of a snapshot of what we're seeing across different categories. We actually have all this data on our website at signified.com slash pulse. Um, and it's broken out by kind of subcategory, apparel, home goods, et cetera. Um, so you can kind of poke around and for, for a data wonk, it's, there's hours of entertainment there, which, you know, maybe I'm just showing my true colors. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. All right. If people had known the other backgrounds you were thinking about for this podcast too, and I think you would have seen it even more. But. <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right, Indy, are you ready to play How Millennial Are You? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Let's go with the first question. So when fun. you're paying for groceries in a store, when you're not uh, pulling up, doing curbside pickup, are you pulling out a credit card or using mobile payment or cash? What are you doing? Uh, you know, I, I, I tried paying uh, in uh, 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 whatever, livestock, and it didn't go over very well. <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, so Apple Pay or um, my credit cards also have the contactless chip. Um, so okay. one of those two. So you're tapping. Okay. Everyone's tapping these days. Like that's like the, like the one thing we hear consistently in 2020, 2021 now that we never heard before. Like it's so funny how that's just taken off. It's definitely the most embarrassing thing though. I feel like when your tap card doesn't work and you just sit there like holding it, <laughs> hovering around, that's like, Power. you definitely don't feel cool. Let me tell you, you don't feel millennial when you're sitting there. It's uh, I think that ages you. Um, so hopefully those will start working. Maybe it's just uh, here in Minneapolis when it's really cold out at the gas pump and those aren't uh, firing completely, but that's fair. Um, I, I don't know if they like stress <laughs> tested those tap card readers for Minneapolis outdoors. I'm going to guess not, which is fine. I mean, we, some, for some reason we choose to live here. Still not quite sure why, but yeah, we're, we're uh, hard. <laughs> we can handle it. Hey, right, we, we, next- I've got earthquakes in San Francisco. I think, sure. I think you're good. And livestock, sure. it sounds like too. So there's yeah. a whole <laughs> throughout there. I like it. <laughs> All right, Indy, next question. How many times in the last week have you ordered food or drinks or groceries from an app? Uh, yeah, um, we're a little old school. So my wife and I generally like going to the grocery store for the nice. wondering factor of like, sure. okay, what are we going to cook this week? Are you a chef? Um, I would not go that far. Okay. Okay. Although I, 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 I squarely fit the stereotype I was just talking about. Like we just upgraded our kitchen knives. Um, so there's that. Okay. But, uh, but yeah. So you look uh, the part for sure. You've got <laughs> the equipment. As, as a, I go. have to ask as a former uh, e-commerce buyer for Target, what, what knife brand did you procure just out of curiosity? Going in nice. Uh, we, we went with um, uh, Shun. So okay. uh, the, yeah, we went Japanese. I mean, it's all, it's all Target, believe it or nice. Not. Uh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I know that brand well. Yeah, it is just the, the uh, I'm a sucker for uh, craftsmanship and just the, the hammered thing they do with their blades looks really cool. I yeah. also may have just watched Kill Bill too many times. <laughs> okay, so anyway, back to the question. 
Uh, I would say three times a week, uh, mostly because we love travel. We can't travel. So with the kids, we play the game of where, where should we travel with our bellies this week? And they pick different places. And yeah, we, uh, we rotate where we order from. We'll have to give that a shot on our side too. I like that idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, okay, last question. If you could only use one social platform, which one would you choose and why? Yeah, I, uh, I think this is no longer cool, but I would go with Instagram, um, mostly because it's the least stress-inducing. Why isn't it cool in your opinion? I'm curious. I, I think Instagram has now aged out um so if we're if we're really talking like you're on one of the cool platforms you got to go TikTok or later um the average instagram user is now in their 30s um i so i, I think that kind of yeah so not cool anymore i mean i feel like indie probably won and beat every single like how millennial gen x are you question that we could ask chris I yeah mean, i gotta i gotta ask later I got to press on that one a little bit too, because he, he said something, he left an opening there. So just to close it out, I got to ask, when you say it's less stressful, like why, what, what, what is it about that, 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 that speaks to you in that way about Instagram? Cause I go on it's Instagram a, and I'm like, man, I'm not living a big enough life. I got to figure this out. Fair. You can, you can do the keeping up with the Joneses type of stress, right? but that's, that's just like, that's been social media since inception. True that. Right? Yeah. True that. Yeah. I, you know, at least for most of the doom scrolling that was 2020, there was just a lot of. Oh, I know, see what you're saying. Yeah. Tribe X versus tribe Y hate yeah. on, on any other social platform or Instagram is just sort of visual content. And yeah. It's, it's an escape. I'll give you that. that Not to get sense. too deep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I got you now. I got you. All right. So, and you think he did pretty well, huh? I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to give it to you. I think he did a great job. Definitely millennial, if not even X or whatever is coming after the next nice. generation. Good job, Indy. Yeah, the Instagram data drop is pretty good there too. We haven't yes. had that before, so nice work. Well, hey man, that was a ton of fun. I, you know, I think that kind of closes us up here. You know, last question for you. Like, I know we found a ton uh, of this content incredibly interesting and learned a lot. So if there's anyone out there who's listening, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you to learn more? Like, what should they do? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, easy guy to find. You can just shoot me a note at indie.guha at signified.com. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if you're curious about all the industry data we're seeing, which we anonymize across our thousands of merchants, check out our Pulse Hub, signified.com slash Pulse. Um, shoot me a note on LinkedIn. I genuinely love geeking out on all the different ways in which e-commerce brings joy to people in an otherwise challenging time and i love talking to people about how they're trying to scale their business and what are some of the operational kind of wins they're seeing challenges they're seeing etc we, we love connecting merchants with other merchants who might have answers to uh, the questions they have so happy to do that yeah we didn't go into this but yeah you've got a background uh, a significant background on a lot of that too in terms of helping and advising people if they're going through that process so yeah look them up for that as well in addition to everything we talked about so well hey man again thanks so much for joining the show again it's Indy Guha the Chief Marketing Officer at Signified to everyone listening 